preaching. And uh, when I got off the phone with Dean, I mentioned to Carol what an unusual observation that was, that a church contacts me and says those two things. Now, we're Reformed in theology, and we want expository preaching. You know, expository preaching is the kind of preaching that I do virtually every time, is to explain a passage of Scripture and try to bring out uh, what, what, the, the original, what the original audience would have seen and how that applies to us. But every once in a great while, I preach what is called a topical message. So I choose an idea and uh, then explore what the Bible, throughout the Bible, has to say about that particular idea. And that's what I'm going to do this morning. So you know I was gone last week, was preaching uh, a, at a Bible conference in North Carolina and enjoying a bit of vacation at the same time. And uh, one of the sermons that I preached there is the sermon that I'm going to preach this morning. It's on unconscious influence, unconscious influence. I'm going to have you turn to Exodus chapter 34 and uh, read a passage of Scripture, but it's not my intention to give an exposition of this passage of Scripture, but to focus in on an instance of unconscious influence that we see described here, and then uh, talk to you this morning about unconscious influence. So beginning in verse 29, Exodus chapter 34 and verse 29... When Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand as he came down from the mountain, Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. Aaron and all the people of Israel saw Moses, and behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come near him. But Moses called to them. And Aaron and all the leaders of the congregation returned to him, and Moses talked with them. Afterward, all the people of Israel came near, and he commanded them, he commanded them all that the Lord had spoken with him in Mount Sinai. And when Moses had finished speaking with them, he put a veil over his face. Whenever Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, he would remove the veil until he came out. And when he came out and told the people of Israel what was commanded, the people of Israel would see the face of Moses, that the skin of Moses' face was shining. And Moses would put the veil over his face again until he went in to speak with him. I'll use this as an illustration a bit later. But the idea that I'm drawing from this is that Moses was having an influence. This influence had come about as a result of his having been in the presence of God, and he was unaware of it. And uh, the point of the sermon today is that each of us also has unconscious influence. When I get to the main points of the sermon, they will be these. First of all, we will look at some uh, illustrations from the Bible about unconscious influence. And we will also look at some examples from our own uh, observations of history and our own experience. That will be the first main point. Secondly, we will uh, look at the, the powerhouse behind unconscious influence. Not to keep you in suspense, it is godly character. 
in the case of exercising good godly influence. It is godly character that gives us unconscious influence that results in a good influence on those around us. And, uh, and then we will look at, uh, from the Bible examples, we'll look at what are the building blocks that contribute to making a godly character. Such things as being in the presence of God, being saturated with the Word of God, that that will be point number three. And then point number four will be some application, so word of, word of encouragement and uh, word of warning and so on. Several years ago, I was in a faculty meeting, and the purpose, one of the purposes of the faculty meeting was that we should uh, approve or disapprove of a, a um, series of propositions that the president had set forward for the institution. And if I recall right, there were about 13 or 14 of these propositions of ways that he thought that would, would advance the, uh, the ministry of the seminary. And one of the propositions was that we would continue to emphasize and promote online education. Now, this was probably in 2016 or 2017, and by that time, the seminary had already been selling more hours online than they were selling in person. And uh, so, in a way, for him to say we're going to continue emphasizing this was just to see this is something that is inevitable and we might as well go along with it. But uh, I, I stood up in that faculty meeting, and I said, I do not think that it is a good idea for us to continue to promote online education. Because online education gives the impression that the primary component of a theological education is the acquisition of information. When in fact, the primary component of a theological education is the formation of character. And the formation of character is something that virtually cannot take place through an online format. And uh, the president said, well, Dr. Oreck, what would you have us do? I said, well, if it was up to me, I'd make the whole thing disappear. I said, look, you're the most influential voice in Christian education. We're the most influential institution in Christian education. Let's take the high road. Let's, let's don't promote what is second best. You know, if it is necessary for some people to study through distance education, fine. But then let's, let's don't make that the main thing that we do. I made reference to one of the well-loved professors that was in the room, Tom Schreiner. I said, the great thing about taking a class with Tom Schreiner is not that you get to get the information that you could get from reading his books. The great thing about taking a class from Tom Schreiner is that you get to spend a whole semester with Tom Schreiner. And uh, so I was, I was uh, not heeded, to put it nicely. I was not heeded. And uh, the, the juggernaut of online education continues. As a disclaimer, uh, most of you know that I teach uh, students in a, in a foreign country through an online format. So I'm not opposed to teaching through an online format if that's the best that you can do. But if you can do better, then why emphasize what is 
so far in second place that you almost can't even see where second place is in the race when first place crosses the finish line. The power of unconscious influence. I, I might ask you, uh, what was your favorite subject in high school? Maybe you can say, I cannot. What was your favorite class in high school? Maybe you can say, but I can't. But if you ask me, who was your favorite teacher, I can tell you without hesitation. And that's the way it is with most people. You remember a person, and you remember the influence that that person had on you. Several years ago, I was uh, talking with someone about the, the, uh, the dis-ease that I, as a pastor, felt when I was summoned to go to a home where someone had died. Uh, you know, I, as the pastor, I feel the, the heartache that, uh, that is being felt. Uh, it, it occurs even when, I, even when I make a phone call. You know, what, what are you going to say? And I was expressing that, uh, that doubt and frustration with someone who was older and, and older and wiser, and he said, well, Jim, uh, the good news is it probably doesn't matter all that much what you say because they probably will not remember what you say, but they will remember that you were there. And that is, that's the power of unconscious influence. It is that, that influence that we have almost exclusively through being personally present that influences people for good or for bad. Almost everyone in here surely has made some homemade ice cream at one time or another. Now, what is, uh, what's the essential component of homemade ice cream and the whole, well, just whatever you put into the ice cream, surely that is it. But you know, if you're going to, if that liquid is going to turn into ice cream, you've got to put ice around it. So then you put the ice around it and and I promise you, you will be cranking for hours and not end up with ice cream if you don't put salt in that ice. That salt, in this illustration, represents unconscious influence. It is the, the silent working thing that makes everything else work. I'll give you several illustrations. The unconscious influence that some Christians exude is like the aroma of fresh-baked cinnamon rolls wafting out onto the street from a bakery. It just invites you to come in. And the unconscious influence that other professing Christians exude is like the smell of rotting potatoes coming out of your pantry. You know that you've got to put some gloves on before you find that thing. And... Uh, the aim, of course, of this sermon is that we will deliberately take steps to see that our influence is like the influence of that salt in the ice around the ice cream freezer, that our influence will be like the aroma of the cinnamon wafting out of the, bake, out of the bakery that draws people to come to Christ. Now, unconscious influence cannot take the place of conscious influence. It wouldn't do any good for me just to stand up here today and smile at you not saying anything. That would exude some unconscious influence, but it probably wouldn't be good. So, but along with 
along with the preaching, there is an unconscious influence that is going forth. And it is virtually inescapable. I'm sure that you have had the experience of hearing someone preach that you did not like. Hope you're not having that experience right now. But you have had that experience, hearing someone preach that you did not like and that you thought was a hypocrite. How much good did that preaching do you? None at all. You, even though he was saying true things, you just think, the guy's, the guy's a blithering hypocrite. I, I'm, not, I'm not going to listen to, to such preaching from such a man. I'm not going to listen to it. And then you've probably also had the opposite experience where someone was saying things that were just not exactly fine-tuned theologically, just a little bit wobbly, but you knew it was coming from someone, maybe a grandmother, maybe a mother, maybe, maybe someone else, who you knew was spending rock-solid time every day in the presence of Jesus, and her or his unconscious influence has shaped you mightily. Even though, even though their theology would not be what you would call was just exactly right on time, yet they loved the Lord Jesus Christ, and that love for the Lord Jesus pervaded the atmosphere around them. Let's think of several instances, several examples from the Bible and then from our own observation of history and our own experience that bears out the fact that unconscious influence is a powerful influence. Now, it's been recently, this summer, that I recommend that you theology students read a sermon by Horace Bushnell titled Unconscious Influence. I read that sermon again this past summer, and uh, it was the third time that I've read it. I don't know that anything from that sermon has influenced this sermon except the title, and surely other preachers have preached on unconscious influence, but uh, just in case you go by and you read that sermon and say, hey, well, Dr. Oreck was saying the exact same thing. I suppose anyone who loves the Bible and who preaches on unconscious influence is going to say some of the same things that I and Horace Bushnell would say in such a sermon. But several of the examples that we find from the Bible would be a couple of the ones that I read to you. So the one that I read from my text when... Uh, Moses comes down from the mountain and his face is glowing, but he doesn't know it. That's very, very mysterious. You just wonder if anyone spent time face to face with the Lord, would his face also glow? I mean, what, what's the physiological explanation for that? And I don't know that there is a physiological explanation. don't think the Lord needs one. Uh, the only other instance that we see of that happening was when the Lord Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration, his face began to shine, and not just his face, but his clothing also began to shine. Uh, but uh, the, the glory of the Lord was so penetrating in Moses that it actually reflected <clears throat> in a supernatural glowing of his face. I don't know that it has ever happened, happened again since then, since it was in the Lord Jesus Christ. But I do, I am intrigued by that statement that Jesus says that in, in the new heavens and the new earth, then the righteous will shine like the sun. I find it also interesting that in so many movies that depict people from outer space, they are really shining beings. And uh, my expertise with movies is very limited, but you can probably think of some of those times when the spaceship opens and boom, out beams this 
this bright light. There just seems to be kind of an idea that beings that come from outside of earth are very resplendent in their brightness. But anyway, Moses is the first example that I bring forth. I think of some bad examples. Ahab was a man who sold himself to do evil in the sight of the Lord, and there was no king as evil as Ahab, and he was urged on by his wife Jezebel. And I doubt if Jezebel set him down for devotions each night and said, now here's how we're going to be the worst couple that has ever ruled the the nation of Israel. But it was just her unconscious influence. She was a wicked woman, and she influenced her already wicked husband to be even more wicked. The book of Proverbs says that when there is an evil ruler on the throne, then wickedness runs rampant in the city. It's not that the, the, uh, the evil ruler is legislating uh, laws, but it's just that people look to their leaders as kind of an example and say, well, if the king can act like that, then I can too. If the king can be a dishonest robber, then I can be a dishonest robber as well. That's the power of unconscious influence. In the New Testament, the Lord Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth and you are the light of the world. Those are both substances or whatever we want to call them. Uh, Those are both substances that exude influence without saying a word. Salt doesn't make a noise when it's applied to the meat that it's intended to preserve. And much of the influence that is exerted by Christianity is also an unconscious influence, and light is the same way. Light is silent, and yet light has a great unconscious influence. When Peter and John ran to the tomb, John at first was reluctant to go in. He stooped down and he saw what was in there, and then Peter comes huffing and puffing up in second place, and he just impetuously rushes into the tomb. Encouraged by the example of Peter, then John also went into the tomb. That's the power of unconscious influence. Or I think about um, what it says in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. If you are a believer and you are married to an unbeliever, if the unbeliever is willing to stay with you, then stay in the marriage. Don't dissolve the marriage if the unbeliever is willing to stay. Because after all, it says there in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, perhaps the unsaved husband will be sanctified by the wife. Perhaps the unsaved children will be sanctified by that spouse who is a believer. And the influence of that believing parent will have an influence upon the children. It doesn't mean that they're certainly going to be saved, but they're going to be exposed to someone who believes the truth and someone whose life is influenced by the truth. That's the power of unconscious influence. Or you think about the directions given to an unsaved woman in 1 Peter chapter 3 that she just wins her husband without saying a word. She's not doesn't mean that she never witnesses to him, but it means that the primary means of her influencing her husband to become a believer is through her unconscious influence. So there are many examples, both for good and for bad, in the Bible about the, uh, the power of unconscious influence. But uh, from our own observations of history and from our own experience, we can come up with others. All of, uh, all of your Baptist life, you have heard about C.H. Spurgeon. I don't know if you've ever read one sermon by C.H. Spurgeon, but I'll tell you a little bit about C.H. Spurgeon. When he was 19 years old, he went to London, he began to preach, and he was preaching in a very historic church, 
New Park Street. Some very famous men had been pastors there. In fact, when he got the invitation to preach at New Park Street, he thought that there had been a mistake made. So he sent, sent a, a letter and said, I'm only 19 years old. They said, we know how old you are. We want you to come and preach for us. And so he goes to preach. This country boy goes to London. And uh, the, first, the first morning that he preached there, I don't remember, 40, 80 people. I can't remember. But that night there were twice as many. And the next Sunday when he came back, there were twice as many yet again. And the congregation continued to grow until at the age of 19 years old, C.H. Spurgeon was the most well-known and most popular preacher in the world at age 19. His sermons began to be published. You can read the sermons that he preached when he was 19. And it's impressive. It, it's impressive for, it would be impressive for a 79-year-old man to preach such a sermon. But then when you think it's preached by a 19-year-old, what an influence that has. But, you know, I've read hundreds of sermons by C.H. Spurgeon, but I have never felt the kind of transport that the people who heard him regularly described that they encountered. That it was just almost like they were in a trance for a while, while he was preaching. And then, and then it was over, almost as if they woke up. I heard Richard Owen Roberts, a man who is still alive today, talk about hearing D. Martin Lloyd-Jones preach uh, at Westminster. And Lloyd-Jones has been dead for 42 years. So going way back, Richard Owen Roberts said that he was in London. He went to hear Lloyd-Jones preach. And he said, I was literally carried away. Well, he's a much older man than me, so I didn't correct his misuse of the word literally. But uh, I knew what he meant, <clears throat> that he was figuratively carried away. He said, I felt, like, I felt like when it was over that someone had come and awakened me out of some sort of a trance. George Whitfield was one of those preachers who had a similar sort of influence, that uh, he, would, he would go into a place and there would just be a stampede of people who would come to hear him. Sometimes the crowd that would come to hear him was estimated to be as high as 80,000. That's eight zero comma zero zero zero, And uh, even if he overestimated by half, then there were still 40,000 people. And then here's someone who is preaching without any amplification, preaching to 40,000 people. And the whole crowd moves. When, when he says something that is funny, there are 40,000 people who laugh. When he says something that evokes tears, then there are 40,000 people who begin to cry. The, fo the, the most famous actor of that day, a man named Garrick, said that he would, he would give, I forget, give, give something great if he could only say the word, oh, like George Whitfield, <laughs> that had such power. Uh, Benjamin Franklin was a friend of George Whitfield, and as far as I know, Benjamin Franklin was never converted, but I think it was Franklin who said that uh, George Whitfield could move you to tears by saying the word Mesopotamia. So, and then Robert Murray McShane died young, uh, but uh, the testimony is when he would just walk from his office onto the stage where he was getting ready to preach, that the congregation would feel the presence of his holiness so great that sometimes the congregation would just spontaneously break into tears. Now, I've read many sermons by Spurgeon. I've read many, Spurgeon, many sermons by Lloyd-Jones, several sermons by Whitfield and McShane, and I have never experienced the kind of transport that those who heard them in person preach. What's missing? C.H. Spurgeon is missing. 
George Whitfield is missing. Martin Lloyd-Jones is missing. Robert Murray McShane is missing. And the, and the power of their unconscious influence is missing. Maybe you yourself have experienced uh, being on an athletic team where things are just kind of going along humdrum and then suddenly somebody on the team gets excited and you feel it and then before you know it, everybody is playing better than they played before. It's the power of unconscious influence. Surely you have at some time been in a stadium or a basketball arena or a gymnasium when, when suddenly a, a different attitude takes hold and, and suddenly everyone is excited and uh, that excitement is so powerful that if you go to play in certain places, you go to play in the swamp uh, at Florida or you go to play in that arena where the University of Alabama plays, they say, well, that in itself is a 10-point deficit when you go there to play because there's so much power and so much energy from unconscious influence. There's uh, many a man and many a woman who has been dragged along to do things in a mob that they would never have done on their own. It's the power of unconscious influence. When we do uh, marriage counseling for young couples, we ask, uh, we ask the couple, uh, you need to consciously identify how your parents had a fuss. And if you don't like it, you need to deliberately take steps to avoid that because your tendency is going to be to fuss like your parents fussed. That's not, be, not because your parents ever set you down and said, here's how you get after it, but because of unconscious influence. Just this is the way that you think things ought to be done. So we have uh, seen in the Bible, we've seen from our observations of history and in our own experience, the power of unconscious influence. Now here is a very important question. What is the powerhouse that drives unconscious influence. And I do not hesitate to say that it is character. Character is that part of you that is the real you. Uh, the part of you that you are when you are in secret and in the dark and nobody sees what you're doing or nobody sees what you're thinking. That's your character. The real you. It is something that is capable of improvement. You can work on your character. You can't work directly on your, inf on your unconscious influence, but you can work on your character, and that character then will uh, assure that you're going to have unconscious influence that is good. I, uh, the word assure is the right word. You will have an unconscious influence, and if you have a good character, your unconscious influence will be good. And I'll try to prove that to you in just a few minutes. But character is, character is the main goal of education. I don't think that it's... I think that it's also accurate to say that character is the main goal of the new birth. You're born again so that you will become a person who loves the truth. You're born again so that you're a person who, you become a person who freely chooses the truth who sides with the truth, who loves God, who has devotion to, uh, to truth and to justice and to wisdom and to courage and to temperance 
You become a person who, who has been implanted with the image of God. And that is the highest goal of Christian character, to become like God himself in the things that we think. And so uh, a person who is born again is someone who prays or thinks in the presence of God. The thinking doesn't always result in words, but if we are consciously in the presence of God, we are, we are subjecting our ideas and our our thoughts and our dreams and our hopes and our plans, we're subjecting all of that to God's scrutiny. That's what's happening when you pray. The main purpose of prayer is not that you're going to change God's mind, but you're going to change your own mind and that you will become conformed to, uh, to God's will in your life as He unfolds it in His Word and through the providential circumstances. And so when you are born again, you become a person who is given a baby character, a baby character that you then have the responsibility of nurturing and, uh, and bringing to maturity. Let's look at three biblical descriptions of the character that the Lord gives to each Christian. Let's first of all look in Matthew chapter 5 at the Beatitudes. I'll just say a word or two about each one of these. Several times in the past, I've preached entire sermons on each one, so I will just say a word. My point here is to say, here is a description from the mouth of Jesus of what someone is like who is in the kingdom of God. In Matthew chapter 5 and verse 3, we see the first character quality, and I think that it is foundational to the rest. Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. I don't think anyone gets into the kingdom of heaven who is not poor in spirit. Poor in spirit means that you recognize that you need something that you don't have yourself. A person who is poor in spirit does not say, I got this. A person who is poor in spirit says, I don't got this. And I need God to give me what I need. I am a beggar. Jesus says, good. Blessed are you when you have that. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Secondly, Jesus says in verse 4, Blessed are those who mourn. This poverty of spirit that has been brought about as a result of sin is something that grieves us. It's not something that we just acknowledge and cavalierly say, well, everybody's human. Instead, it affects us. And Jesus says, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. It also results, it also affects the way that we think about God and his dealings towards us and the way that other people behave towards us, and we respond with meekness. Meekness is not weakness. Meekness is strength under control. Meekness is the idea of I have seen who I am. It's made me poor in spirit and mournful. And now I cannot expect people to treat me like I'm a king. Meekness is the exact opposite of being a victim. A victim is always blaming somebody else. The meek person says, it's my fault. And I'm amazed that God treats me as well as he does. And that makes me hungry and thirsty for righteousness, a righteousness that I cannot supply myself, but I want to become more holy. Jesus says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. And it further influences the way that we think about other people. Maybe before we were born again, we saw... 
other people and thought that they were just lazy or we thought that they were obnoxious, but now our attitude has changed and we're merciful for they shall receive mercy. There is a singleness of purpose in our lives. Jesus says, blessed are the pure in heart. That would be that single eye, that singleness of purpose, for they shall see God. They're going to be rewarded for seeking after God with their whole heart. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are looking for opportunities, not to stir up trouble, but to pour oil upon the trouble. It doesn't mean that the world is going to like you, but blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So Jesus says this is, this is the kind of character that is going to result in you. Look at verse 13. You're the salt of the earth. And verse 14, you're the light of the world. This is the kind of character that means you are going to have a salty, light-filled influence on the world. And then let's look at that description of Christian character that it's in Galatians chapter 5, the fruits of the Spirit. Galatians chapter 5. It's interesting that uh, the works of the flesh are described as works, and the fruits of the Spirit are described not as works, but as fruits. I don't know if you've ever noticed this before, but all the fruits of the Spirit are predominantly attitudes rather than actions. Attitudes rather than actions. In other words, it has to do with who you are rather than with what you do. Of course, if you are this kind of person, then it's going to result in good works. Verse 22 says, but the fruit of the Spirit is love. Let's just ask ourselves these questions. Am I a loving person? Do people around me feel it? Do they feel like I I love them? Joy. Is my joy obvious? Even even a person who may struggle with depression, uh, at least at some time, should come up for air and have joy. Peace. Are you always vexed? Is it impossible to relax around you? Because you're just always so jumpy and always thinking about what everybody else needs to be doing or even what you're doing? Are you just persistently always behind and frantic about it? That's not peaceful. Are you patient? Patience is required when you're putting up with something that you'd rather not have to put up with, but you do it with a a calm, merciful way. Are you patient? Kind? Are you quick to see the bad stuff in people? Or do you try to think the best of people? That results in kindness. That is kindness. Goodness? Are you attracted to the things that the Bible says and the Lord says and that civilized culture has said are good things? Good pastimes? Good recreations? Good principles towards work? Faithfulness? Can, you, can your word be counted on? If you say yes, does it mean yes? Gentleness? Even though you may be very smart, even though you may be very strong, are less intelligent people comfortable around you? Or do they feel like you're always picking them apart? Are less strong people 
They feel unsafe around you? Or does it make them happy that such a strong person as you are is on their side? Do you have self-control? If you have these qualities in your life, you will have a positive unconscious influence. And then let's turn to the book of of 2 Peter chapter 1. And we'll see yet a third list here. I don't think any of these lists are exhaustive, but uh, all of them together are very helpful. And here are eight qualities descriptive of a Christian character that I believe will result in a positive, godly, unconscious influence. I preached from this text fairly recently. Verse 5, For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith Faith is fundamental with virtue or excellence, virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. It's almost useless to read it that fast. This is the sort of thing that you need to memorize, the sort of thing that you need to pray over and think about. Am I making every effort? That's what it says at verse 5. For this reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue. And then at verse 10 it says, Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. So these character qualities of a Christian character are not merely descriptive, but they are also prescriptive. That is, that you are to be seeking deliberately, consciously to cultivate these principles, these thoughts into your own life. And if you do, then you're going to have an unconscious influence. So that leads me to the third point, which is what are the building blocks that lead to unconscious, a character that exudes godly good influence? And uh, so, first of all, uh, being in the presence of God, like Moses was, just being in the presence of God, there's no substitute for that. There's no substitute for spending time in prayer. There's no time for spending time in deliberate, contemplative Bible study. If you just rush through it, then it's likely that your unconscious influence for good will be weak. But if this becomes a a controlling motif of your life, even when you're not on your knees literally, that you're on your knees in your brain, and you're constantly submitting your life to the Lord throughout the day, and you practice the presence of God, it's going to make your character grow strong. If you're just every day reading your Bible reading to get it over with so you don't get off schedule, that's not going to have as good a strengthening influence on your character as it will if you deliberately take time to deeply engage with what the Lord is saying and reflect upon how it is relevant for your life. There is no substitute for spending time in the presence of God. You become like the people that you are around. And that works if the person you are around 
is God himself. So the first building block for building a virtuous character is to spend time in the presence of God. And the second thing is really a subcategory of that, and that is to abide in the Lord Jesus Christ. So this, but it is more specific. Take a look at what it says in John chapter 15. This is how I was able to say with assurance that if you have a godly character, you will have a good godly influence. It may not be widespread. You may not even be aware of it. After all, it is unconscious. But it is going to happen according to what we read here in John chapter 15. Look at verse 4. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. And then it goes on throughout the next 10 or 12 verses, talking about how that if you abide in Christ and his words abide in you, you will bear much fruit. And so you may be assured that if you are abiding in Christ and deliberately funneling your time with God through the funnel of Jesus Christ and the gospel, it's going to influence your character. Jesus, after all, was and is a human being. Today, when we take the Lord's Supper, we will remember that Jesus really had a body. He really had blood. In fact, if you think that his body and his blood were just a delusion, you are not a Christian and you are not yet ready to observe the Lord's Supper. You must discern the body and blood of the Lord. That He really was a real human who came in, in the flesh. And as a real human, and thinking about abiding in Jesus and his teachings abiding in us, it influences our character so that we inevitably bear fruit. A third building block that I have already intimated is the deliberate effort that we put into it. So this is not just a matter of us sitting back and soaking up God. It's a matter of our taking responsibility for this baby soul, this baby person that has been entrusted to us and recognizing that this is something that we have a responsibility for and I want to make sure that I, my character is growing. You're going to get to take it to heaven with you. And when you get to heaven, your character will be made perfect in holiness but I think that the rewards of heaven and the, whether more or whether less are related to the development of your character. I think that your capacity for the enjoyment of heaven is going to be related by the development of your character. You know, uh, a half-gallon bucket that is full of water is full all the way. But a five-gallon bucket that is full of water is also full, but it holds more. If you go to heaven with a half-gallon character, you're going to be full of joy. 
But if you go to heaven with a five-gallon character, you're going to be full of more joy. And so you're doing, you're doing a favor for your... Nobody's going to be unhappy in heaven, but you're going to be doing a favor to your future capacity for experiencing and enjoying God if you develop your character deliberately. Well, if you disagree with what I said about heaven, I don't see how you could disagree with the fact that the next few years of your life are going to be enriched if you have a character that is familiar with and happy in the presence of God. Uh, So deliberate deliberate effort, I think, is a, a vital component in the development of a godly character. Then fourthly, uh, Fourthly, it's impossible to overestimate the influence of faith. Believing what God has said and acting accordingly. This is the way that the unbelieving spouse sanctifies... This is the way that the believing spouse sanctifies the unbelieving spouse. It's through faith. This is the way the the wife, 1 Peter chapter 3, who is married to an unconverted man. This is the way that she influences. She lives by faith. There's something about the converted spouse that is inexplicable apart from the truth that God has revealed. And so faith is one of the essential building blocks. So let's conclude then with uh, three points of application. And the first point of application is be aware that you have this influence and be aware that you are susceptible to this influence. You know, I had, had the idea for many years that, that human skin was virtually impervious. That is, that nothing could get through it. But that's not true. If you... I'm thinking of something that happened in a seventh grade science class. There was a boy sitting there in class, rolling around a little silver something on his palm. It was mercury. He was rolling around a little, a little marble-sized drop of mercury on his hand. And uh, some of you say, well, what's the big deal? Because mercury permeates through your skin and gets in your blood. And if enough of it gets in, it will kill you. Your skin is not impervious to outside influences. And neither is your character. Just because you're a Christian doesn't mean that you can watch all that, all that stupid stuff and it not affect you with stupidity. It doesn't mean that you can just go sloshing through all of that filth and, you're not going to, and some of that filth is not going to get into your soul. You, need, you and I must be aware that we are susceptible to unconscious influence. As you think about educational uh, your own education, you need to take that into consideration. If you're the one who's making decisions about your education, how can I get into a situation where the unconscious influence is going to build me up and not tear me down? If you're making educational decisions for other people, you need to take that into consideration. How is the environment of this place going to affect? Those of you who are searching for a church, you need to take that into consideration. What's the environment of this church? Is the environment of this church something that is likely to help me to grow in Christ? Is the environment of this church something that is likely to help my children to grow up strong? 
So there are many considerations, but I can't think of anything more important to ask than what is the environment of our learning education. So the first point of application is be aware not just that you have an unconscious influence, but that you and I are vulnerable to the effects of unconscious influence for good and for evil. Secondly, be challenged. If your unconscious influence is a a result of the deliberate effort that you put into building your character and forming it after the image of Christ, get busy. Get busy and, and deliberately work on the things that are out of step with these character descriptions that I gave you. Have you have a problem with a lack of patience? Make that a focal point of your efforts for the next few weeks. I am deliberately going to try to be patient. Lord, when I, when I have a tendency to lose my temper, help me to remember I'm working on being patient. And just pick something and work on it. So be challenged. The final thing that I want to say by way of application is be encouraged. Unconscious influence is flowing forth from you. <clears throat> and if you are a person who has a godly character, you may not see it, but it's happening. Because the Lord Jesus has said, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, you will bear much fruit. And so be encouraged. You just, you just never know. <clears throat> you just never know what kind of influence a, a word that you speak or just a smile that you give has on someone else. Let me conclude with quoting again a poem that I quoted to you fairly recently, even this summer, but it goes like this. Not only in the words you say, not merely in your deeds expressed, but in the most unconscious way is Christ confessed. Is it a beatific smile or holy light upon your brow? Oh no, I felt his presence when you laughed just now. To me, t'was not the truth you taught, to you so clear, to me still dim. But when you came to me, you brought a sense of him. And from your eyes, he beckons me. And from your lips, his love is shed. Till I lose sight of you and see the Christ instead. Well, it is an opportunity that we have.